All right, this is my Bible. <laughs> I believe it is God's word. It, every word is true. <laughs> and it is all that I need. That's right, it is. Every time we say those words, that before we study, you know, it's so important that we are aware that it is God's word. It's God speaking to us. I, I sometimes say, um, even to myself, uh, pretend that Jesus is right there in front of you and he's got his hands on your cheeks. And I don't know if some of you moms did this with your children, but I used to, to make sure that they were listening, I would grab a hold of their cheeks. And I would hold them between my two hands and make them look at me. And I would say, okay, now that I have your attention, listen to me, you know? And it seems like that's what we need sometimes is that Jesus is coming to us and puts his hands on our cheeks and says, now I have words for you. Listen to me. This is so necessary for you. I mean, you know, everybody's world is shaken in some shape or form, and we need that that assurance. We need that blessed assurance that that we're on the solid rock, that we know who our cornerstone truly is. So, all right, Acts chapter, Acts chapter 4 tonight, and um, you know, Acts is the Acts of the Apostles. You know, I think we understand that, but when you have somebody who's Acting. I mean, th these are stories, their actions, and uh, I think it's important that you picture that you picture the them in their, you know, in their what they're doing. That you picture them in their work and in their hardships, and 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 I thought I'm just going to remind you of a couple things because I think acts when it's full of action, it's quite a visual thing, that you use your imaginations, you put yourself in the story, and that's good because that's how we learn, and we, have, we keep it relatable to us. But, I mean, you think about what it would have been like in Acts chapter 1 if you were there and all of a sudden Jesus takes off in the clouds. I mean, you're watching the man who, who you walked with for three years and listened to for three years and watched him die on a cross, and then he rose from the dead, and, and for 40 days he kept appearing to you, and, and then all of a sudden, there he takes off. You know, that is, you know, this really happened. And, and then in Acts chapter 2, what it would have been like to, to have and sense the power of God's Spirit come at the Feast of Pentecost. And then to watch Peter then just with all of this boldness stand up and, and address the Israelites, the Jewish people, without any fear and even say to them, you crucified him. And then when he said, um, I know that you did it in ignorance, and then we, we realize that the ignorance is not a, a pass, that you can't say, well, that's an excuse. No, it wasn't. When he said you acted in ignorance, he meant you ignored the Savior. He was right there in front of you, and you ignored him. Don't ignore him again. And then, and then you hear... Um, and you witness Peter taking that lame man from birth 
and says, silver and gold we don't have, but what I have I will give you. In the name of Jesus, walk. Again, visualize that. And wouldn't it have been something to actually see that and to watch that man jump and praise and hang on to Peter and John and to watch his life change. And, and yet, yet you also see Peter using this opportunity because, again, he created a crowd. This miracle created a crowd. And Peter made sure that they knew that it wasn't anything in his fingers. I mean, he didn't have any magic in him, no magic potions. and No, he made it very clear that the power is the Holy Spirit in the name of Jesus. You know, if you notice, in the last couple of weeks, we've been singing songs about the name of Jesus. And do you notice, too, how many times when you are praying, how often you will end your prayer with, in Jesus' name. And it isn't just a good thing to end your prayer with because you know that we are winding down and, you know, ready to pick up our fork or whatever, you know. When you pray in Jesus' name, it is so serious because what you are really doing is you're relinquishing what you just prayed to the almighty power of God. In in Jesus' name, you are relinquishing to his will. You're willing to step aside with your will, and you desire his will. That's why, That's why. you know, you say, why can't we heal like that today? Well, we can. We have the same Holy Spirit, the same power working, but when we pray for healing, then we relinquish that you do whatever is best. That is when you pray in Jesus' name. That's why Peter makes sure that he keeps saying, we do this in Jesus' name. And even in tonight's lesson, again, you see, in Jesus' name, we allow Jesus' name to have his perfect way. That's when we pray that. That's what you are actually saying. Your perfect will be done. Your way of healing in this situation is the best. It is, it, we should pray that with such confidence because his will is always perfect. So, and, then, and then today we start in Acts 4. You can almost hear Jesus saying, whispering in their ear through the Holy Spirit, helping them recall Jesus' words when Jesus said, in this world you're going to have trouble. You're going to be running amok with certain people. They're going to be on your case, and it's going to be difficult, and you are not always going to bat a thousand. People are not all going to believe, and you're going to have trouble, and a lot of times you have the most trouble with your own. And it seems like right off, right, you know, right out of the, right out of, you know, right off the bat, they're having trouble, and here they come, and priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to Peter and John while they were speaking to the people. I bet they could almost see him coming. The, you know, they, had a, they, had, they were the religious big shots. At least they were part of the religious big shots. And, and I'm sure they had a walk about them. I'm sure that when they were, were approaching Peter and John, 
I'm sure that they did not have a, a very appealing and welcoming and loving look on their face. They came to make trouble. They came to quiet these men. And they were throwing their weight around and said they were greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. Well, that made the Sadducees mad because they didn't even believe in the resurrection. So, you know, I'm sure they thought that these guys were just such a bunch of goofballs and they wanted them quieted because, I mean, they were being threatened. People were turning by the thousands to the message of the gospel and, you know, what happened to all their religiosity and their, you know, their prestigeness and their, um, their authority was all being challenged. And they seized Peter and John. They seized them. Again, I don't think that was uh, a simple take them by the hand kind of thing. I think they grabbed them. They seized them. And because it was evening, they put them in jail until the next day. But many who heard the message believed. And the number of men grew to about 5,000 now. Now remember, we are still in Jerusalem. We're still in Jerusalem, and their message was first to go to the Jews. And this is what they're doing. And they're not a bit afraid to tell them how they had ignored this message before, and they better not do it again. And here, here they, they are thrown in jail. And I just love verse 4. And I had to ask a question about that. Can the gospel be stopped? And that should be in, the, in our day and age, in our, in our world, in what we're seeing happening to Christianity. And this should be so exciting for us. We shouldn't, we shouldn't ever fall into doom and gloom and hopelessness, even though our world's a mess. We should take such comfort in this because, you know, things were not, things were not good for the apostles right now. And they're throwing them in jail because why? Because they spoke and they taught and they proclaimed. Nobody proclaims without being excited. The word proclaim means they're just thrilled to be able to share this message because it changed their lives and they wanted to just like look with Theophilus. I want this for you. And so all they're doing is they're speaking, they're teaching, they're proclaiming. And these big wigs, they throw them in jail. But look at verse 4. But many who heard the message believed. Can the gospel be stopped? No. I mean, you hear about it so many times. And that's why as much as our country is in a a state right now, we are still able to walk into this place tonight. And no one is stopping us yet. But so many places, they have to to hide and they have to be silent. And and they're they're always wondering when they're going to get caught and actually thrown into prison or even martyred. 
I mean, that's a reality. I know it isn't for us, but we don't know if that could change. But we should always take encouragement from this, that no matter what's going on around us, the gospel message cannot and will not be stopped. And why? Because we have a God that truly is in control of his message. All right, now the next day, the rulers, elders, and teachers of the law met in Jerusalem. Now again, Luke really got a detailed description of this and who was coming. I mean, he, he was told that, you know, the priests and then the, then the temple guard and then the Sadducees. And now we've got the rulers, the elders, and teachers of the law, probably the Pharisees. We've got the Sanhedrin. I mean, these are the mucky mucks. These are the, the high rollers of the religious day. Annas, the high priest, was there. So was Caiaphas, John, Alexander, and the other men of the high priest family. They had Peter and John brought before them and began to question them. And they questioned them by this, this one. This one question did it. By what power or what name did you do this? Verse 8, verse 8, I put a star there because, you know, that question was a pretty hefty one, you know. By what power or what name did you do this? And, and he's talking about the healing of the lame man. There, and so Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, filled with the Holy Spirit, and again, I can't say that enough because that is so important because when you're filled with the Holy Spirit, there's no room for self. And so none of your, your own emotions, and you, that's all kept in check because he has got a message to say. Rulers and elders of the people. And in my Bible, it's got an exclamation point. Remember I told you last week in the last couple weeks in Acts 2 and 3, you know, it, they were intense lessons because it's an intense message. It's, it's eternal life or eternal death kind of message. And it's confronting the people that will not listen because they're, they're ignoring, they're plugging their ears, they don't want to hear. And so it is serious. And we have to be serious about it. And so Peter he is using this opportunity, too, in an exclamation point. And he said, rulers and elders of the people, if we are be, being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a cripple and are asked how he was healed, I mean, if this is what you're asking, and then he says with all confidence, and see, that's what happens when you're filled with the Spirit. You are so confident. There's no backing away because wouldn't you think that all, all of these high rollers, all of these mucky mucks, wouldn't you think that Peter and John would be a little intimidated with their, with their garb and their, their dress and the way their hair 
handling themselves and, you know, in their authority and in, in their pomp and circumstance and all that nonsense. You'd think they would have been a little intimidated by that whole group coming at them. And you don't see that one bit because when you're filled with the Spirit, when you're so confident that what you're saying is right, and it is the truth. That's why when you quote scripture to someone, you can be so confident. I mean, they can shoot holes through your opinions, but when you come at them, in fact, a friend of mine, it was probably one of the nicest compliments I ever received, and she says, whenever we talk about any subject, you always go back to the Bible, don't you? And, and that, that really was a wonderful compliment, and I appreciated that because... I said, well, whenever we discuss something, if I don't go back to God's word, then, then it's just full of my opinions. But when, you, when I have something to say, this is what God says, that takes on a whole different kind of authority to me. And then if you want to reject it or if you don't like what you're hearing, well, then, sorry, that's what God says, then you better tangle with him. That's, I used to say that to my boys all the time growing up. When, I would, when they wanted to do something, and I said no, and they'd say, well, why? And I said, well, you know, really, I'm your mom. I don't owe you an explanation. But, but um, if you're asking for one, and then I would give them a Bible verse. <laughs> oh, my, if I got a nickel for every time they rolled their eyes at me. I'd be a rich woman today. But, you know, it's just the way it is with kids. But I just knew that, you know, I quoted with God's word. This is how I... This is how we parented, you know, this is what God said. And, and if you don't like it, take it up with him. He wrote the book, I didn't. You know, and that, that was just, you know, it was such a, it was a, I shouldn't say an easy way out, but it was, it, it, cut, the, it cut the debate. It cut the fighting. You know, I remember one time when one of my boys, when he was 16, you know, that's kind of smart mouth and, Good kid, but you know, just to just you know, I had that 16, 17 year old smart mouth, and and uh, he said, Well, he wanted to go somewhere, I don't even remember what it was about anymore. You know, usually it's such a minor thing, but it revs up into huge because I simply said the word no, no, you're not going, and it made him so mad that I know his little wheel, those wheels were just like he was thinking, now, what can I do to hurt her? i got to get back at her somehow. I could see those wheels just going, and I was waiting for it because we're so much alike, and I was ready. I thought, here, you know, we're going to put the dukes up here. I really was expecting that, and he, he came back. Sure enough, he didn't, let, he, he didn't disappoint me. I mean, he came up with a, a zinger, and it went right to my soul, and it, it hurt. And so, yeah, he, he did a good job. He said to me, he says, aren't you smart enough to give me an answer on your own? You always have to go to the Bible for your, for your answer. Aren't you smart enough? And I, it just, you know, I mean, my human self wanted to grab him by the neck. <laughs> I mean, you talk about disrespectful. And yet I could sense that the Holy Spirit was saying, no, you know, that's just exactly what he wants, and he wants to fight on this. And I remember I just looked at him, and I was really calm. 
I just looked at him and I says, no, no, I'm not smart enough. I'm not smart enough at all. That's why I'm so grateful I've got a book to be able to come at you with because you are smart. But this book is smarter. And then I turned and I started walking away. And, but I just had to see in the corner of my eye, I just had to see what was happening to him at this point. And he was still standing there. And I remember, like, he just, his jaw dropped. I mean, like, there was, there was no, nothing more to say. I admitted I wasn't smart enough. I answered this question. You're right. No, I'm not smart enough. So I'm grateful. I do have a book that's far smarter than any one of us. So I know how to raise you. You know, I mean, this, this is so powerful. And, I, and I, I hope you see that this is what Peter would, you know, last week, remember, he, he, a week before, he went with Joel, and he recalled David, and he, he keeps, tonight he'll recall David again. You know, he goes back to the Psalms, and God's word, it's just true. And it's, it's what you need to be able to, that's why it's so important that we keep studying it so that the Holy Spirit has something to help us recall when, when we're addressed by people, when they throw us off and we can come back and say, yeah, but the Bible says, God says, Jesus said. And you, you wonder when, when this all was transpiring, if if Peter and John were starting to remember Jesus' words when he said, yeah, you're going to have trouble. It is not going to be easy. But fear not, I have overcome. Because now it's really going to start, and it doesn't let up. But it doesn't intimidate. You know, when you are so sure of God's word, when you are so sure that it's true, and it doesn't matter how smart someone is or who, who they think they are, they're not smarter than God. And that's why when Peter was so confident to be able to stand, no, not intimidated in the least bit. That's why in verse 10 he says, then know this. No. Oh, that took a lot of nerve to look at those, those um, leaders and say, you know this, you know this. You and all the people of Israel, I want you to know this. It is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified. And I don't think he's saying this under his breath either. He has got courage and he has got you know, the Holy Spirit on his side, and he is letting them know the truth. He's saying, it's by the name of Jesus Christ. It's not anything we did. It is the one you crucified that gave us the power and the strength. You crucified whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. Again, he made sure that they knew and then he recalled again, Psalm 118, the stone you builders rejected. 
the thing is, these leaders, when he quotes Psalm 118, they brought, they knew it. They knew those words. And what Peter's trying to do is get them to see, we're talking about you here. When this was written, believe it or not, it was about people like you. The stone you builders rejected, which has become the capstone, the cornerstone. And then verse 12. Verse 12, if you don't know this by memory, I would surely, I would surely um, ask you to do that for your own benefit because I think it's only going to get worse that people are going to be confused by how to get to heaven or... And if you ever want a verse, if someone says to you, oh, there's just there's so many ways to get to heaven, or, you know, I've been a good person all my life, and I've given a lot. I was good to my neighbor. I was a good parent. Uh, I mean, on and on you can go. And this verse, and again, you're quoting scripture, and this is what I call a non negotiable verse. A non-negotiable verse means that it doesn't change. There are These are the terms that God set up. This is how salvation happens. You are a lost lot, every last one of you. You're a lost lot, and the only way that you can possibly be saved is through the name of Jesus. And those conditions and those terms have not changed, and they never will change. Again, with confidence, he says, salvation is found in, now watch all the no's, in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. Even if you know the principle, if you know where it's found, Acts 4.12, you can, you can quick get your Bible or if you, if you don't want to memorize, but you know Acts 4.12 is the answer, the non-negotiable. You can't debate it. You can't question it. These are the terms that God set up. There are none others. Salvation is found in no other name than the name of Jesus. And every one of you must be saved because there isn't one of you who are saved on your own. Now, I, I just, uh, just for a second, I want to make sure that you understand the difference between non-negotiable principles. And believe it or not, there's really not that many. I mean, every word of... of God's word is true, but, but there are very few non-negotiables. You know, the Ten Commandments, again, non-negotiable. This verse, non-negotiable. Now, what I call, there are many, there are many negotiable things. And I think we all have been there, and 
the unfortunate thing about it is, growing up for me, is that um, there was such a confusion between non-negotiable and negotiable because back in my day, the way I was raised, the, nego the negotiable things were made to look like non-negotiable. Like, um, you know, just like Sunday observance, you know. And we laugh because I remember one time, you know, we were on vacation and, and my mom and dad said, okay, you can swim, but don't splash <laughs> on Sunday. I mean, I mean, we could go on and on. I'm sure every one of you know that. And the thing is, it was such a big deal. It's kind of like, you know, I, I, I've told this story before, but uh, it's so important that you understand the difference between non-negotiable and negotiable and why things are negotiable, because as you grow in the Lord and the Holy Spirit then convicts, let me explain through a story. This one, one gal in one of my studies years ago, she had a daughter, a wayward daughter, and, and we prayed for her for three years. We prayed for this wayward daughter. And one day she came to Bible study, and we could tell she was so excited to be able to tell us that her daughter came to church with them that Sunday, brought her boyfriend. They came for dinner. Oh, we, were, we all just clapped. We were so thrilled for her. She says, and then when dinner was done, then her boyfriend stood up and, and said, thank you so much. I had a wonderful morning. I, I loved being in your church, and thank you for a delicious dinner. But my brother and I have plans to go fishing this afternoon. She says, Linnell, I want you to know, you'll be very proud of me. I stood right up and said, we don't do that on Sunday. She said, I did good, didn't I? And I don't usually say this, but I said, no, you didn't do good. You've got a young man who doesn't know Jesus as his Savior yet, and you're going to start piling on him all the rules. See, that to her, going fishing on Sunday was a non-negotiable. But I have yet to find this in Scripture, that you can't fish on Sunday. Now, the thing is, I'm not just saying, if it doesn't say it in the Bible, I can do it. I'm going to tell you about something else. I used to watch this one TV show, and I know you're going to die. You're just dying to know what it is, and I'll never tell you. But I used to watch this TV show, and for years I did. And laugh, it was so funny, I thought it was just a hoot. And then, all of a sudden, I'm watching it one night, and I thought, this is just filthy. And I have no business watching this. And I remember turning it off, and I have not watched it since. Now, the thing is, for years I watched it. What was the matter with me? Well, as I grew in the Lord, as he started taking more and more of my heart, and I started seeing more and more of Jesus' character and less of mine, you know, when, when, that, when that, that's what's supposed to happen after our salvation. As, as we saw from the early church after their salvation, after those 3,000 got saved, it said they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, and every day they, they studied and that when that ha when you do that, you start watching the conversion experience start taking over you because you have a new life in Christ. 
And so maybe, you know, I wasn't to that point before, but then as I grew in the Lord, all of a sudden I thought, I have no business here. So this is how the Lord, that's why the Lord says, I don't put all those negotiable things in there because the Holy Spirit, as you grow, he'll just kind of prick you and he'll convict you. He will cut right to your heart and you will feel like, no, no, that's, that's not appropriate anymore. That's called spiritual growth. And you start, you start watching yourself change. But the problem that I think a lot of us grew up with is that people were confused with what non-negotiable, because like I said, there's, only, there's very few non-negotiables that the, the Lord puts in there that you can't change, you can't. But so many of the things of our actions and our behaviors, the Holy Spirit, as we grow in him, will start changing us. And we just can't get those negotiable things because everybody's at a different place. We can't start pointing our finger and getting confused with those negotiable things with non-negotiable things. Do you follow me? And here, so that's why I put... Acts 4.12 is one of those non-negotiables that will never, never change. God's terms for salvation will never change. And Peter was not a bit afraid to say that we all must be saved. Verse 13, when they saw the courage of Peter and John, so when these, when these religious leaders... When they saw that Peter and John did not back away in intimidation, they did not back away and, and kind of soften their, their message or maybe skirt around it because they didn't want to be so direct. I think a lot of times that's our problem. We're so afraid of people turning on us that, that we soften the message or we skirt around but they saw the courage of these men because they didn't do that. And Peter and John, when, when, they, were, when they spoke with such courage, they, these leaders realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men. No fancy words. They were just unschooled, ordinary and Luke, being a medical doctor, whoever was telling him this information, he really wanted to make sure that we knew that detail. And the, the words that came after that, even though these men were just, most of them were fishermen, one was a tax collector, some of them we really don't know, but they were just ordinary, unschooled men. Especially Peter and Andrew, James and John. And they were astonished. I'm sure they couldn't believe that men with no education or, you know, no, you know, fancy clothes or no fancy words, they just, they just said it. Again, isn't that such a good lesson for us? Because what, what enabled them 
to have this courage, to be able to recall scripture, to be able to, to have the confidence, the filling of the Holy Spirit. They were letting the Holy Spirit do his job in them. And it was noticeable. Look at this. They were astonished, and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. That is a priceless line that I hope that you can underline and claim that for yours. That you are the way you are because you've been with Jesus. You know, sometimes, you know, I wonder why the Lord gave me so many experiences and I have so many stories, but what came to my mind was uh, one time um, there was there was about six, eight month period of time that I was asked to, and I had, to this day, I don't know where um, MetLife, the insurance company, I mean, I never sang for secular events ever, and we got a call one day from from the from, you know, I don't think it was the president at that time, but somebody who was booking these events. And, and they said, um, I answered the phone, and they said, um, is this Linnell Pierce? And I said, yes, it is. And they said, well, we are from MetLife Insurance, and we have a big conference, a big, well, it was a kind of, they had individual places around the country and in different parts of the world. They had these um, big seminars, you know, to get everybody pumped up to go out there and sell some more, you know. And and they would get these, you know, speakers and all that. And they said, we we heard your patriotic medley. And we would we would just love to have you sing at our events and just start our convention with the your patriotic medley. Now, I have to say, it, it was a really good one. I mean, I, it was a melee of three of the best patriotic songs. And, and so, you know, I wasn't quite sure about this. You know, I, you mean you're going to fly me to San Francisco for one song? And they said, yeah. And I said, well, I, you're not going to try to change me, are you? They said, no, we don't care who we are. We just, want, we just want you to sing that song. And so I handed it over to Tom, and, the, and I heard Tom say, okay, yeah, are you, will somebody be there to pick her up? And he was making these arrangements, and when he hung up, before I knew it, we had, I was flying to San Francisco for one song. And I, I got there, and um, it was it was quite a moment because, I mean, I'm all alone. I, I'm only going to be there for, you know, 24 hours, and, and I'm just carrying my dress. That's about all I needed. And, and I get off the plane, and I, and I walk out there not knowing who is going to be there. And all of a sudden, there, and, and I know we have a lot of men in here, but, you know, we women, we love our husbands so much, but we're not dead. And so when <laughs> there was this, there was this good-looking, I mean, he was a doll babe, is all I can say. He was in a three-piece Navy suit. I'll never forget it. And he was carrying a sign that said Linnell Pierce on it. And so I walked up to him, 
And I tried, you know, this is my first time at this, and so I'm trying to act like I just didn't come off the boat. So I'm acting like the, that I've done this many times. So I just went up to him, and I says, I'm Linnell Pierce. And he says, well, welcome to San Francisco. He says, um, it is my honor to, to take you to where you need to be. So he, he took my dress from in my bag there, you know, and he took it, and, and he took me outside, and there was this beautiful limousine. And I thought, well, I guess I'm going to be riding with, you know, some of the higher-ups here, and, you know. And um, I, he opened the door for me, and um, there was no one else in there. And he said, um, yes, I'm your driver, and this is your car. For one song. <laughs> and I'm used to hauling equipment. And, and now he put, you know, he puts me in the car there, and, and then he asked me if I've ever been to San Francisco. I said, no. And so he said, let me show you around. He took me down to, you know, Fisherman's Wharf and Crooked Street, and then, then he dropped me off to um, the Fairmount Hotel where the conference was going to be. And then there was someone else that helped me out of the car, and then it was just a world I had never been in. And, they showed me this room, this suite that I was going to be staying for just one night. And I, as soon as he closed the door, I called Tom. I said, you're not going to believe this. Tom's running our garage sale. And so, <laughs> and that's the truth. And as excited as he was about my news, he had good news too. He said, I sold everything. So he, <laughs> The garage door was down by noon. I mean, it was so funny. So anyway, then at that night, the point to my story is, you know, that, that night I went down, I met, you know, I had rehearsal, and the next day I did, I sang the, the you know, the Page on Melly. It was, it was really something. I ended up singing, too, with another Climb Every Mountain with, with, their, with their main speaker who was blind actor. I, I forget his name right now. Um, but... It was quite an event, and then when I was done, I, I went to the airport and flew home. I mean, my boys hardly knew I was gone. And the thing is, on the way home, though, I had the same driver, and he kept looking at me in the rearview mirror, and he said, um, so you were their singer? And I said, yeah. And he said, well, what kind of music do you sing? And I thought, okay, here I go. And uh, I said, I'm a gospel singer. And he, he looked at me and gave me the funniest look. And he said, you can't be because you're the wrong color. And in his mind, and that just gave me a sign and a signal that he really didn't understand what the gospel was. But I didn't want to be pushy, of course. And so I thought, like, like what Peter said, be ready with an answer when they ask you for the hope that you have. So anyway, we're, I said, no, no. I said, um, gospel. Gospel means I'm a singer of the greatest news. And I thought, if he doesn't bite on this. And I said, I'm, the, I'm a singer of the greatest news there ever is. And he said, well, what is the greatest news? And I said, well, I don't really know how to put it to you in a, in a way, but maybe I'll try it this way. Um, you know, you really are a good-looking man. And this is not a pass, I said right away. I said, this is not a pass, but you are a good-looking man. And he knew it. You know, he knew it. And I said, but let me just tell you one thing. Is that you can do everything you want about the outside and 
make it as handsome as you possibly can. I said, but the thing is, if I turned you inside out, you wouldn't be very good looking. I said, but neither am I. I said, because the greatest news is that we have a Savior who will take all that sin and darkness and hopelessness. And he, he took it all the way to the cross and shed his blood so that we could be saved from what we deserved. And he just listened, and then I stopped. I thought, that's enough. And he just kept asking me question after question. And then finally, after 30 minutes, I got to the airport, and he came around, and he took my hands, and he looked at me straight in the face. He said, I have a feeling I will never be the same after today. And I said, no one ever is after they have been with Jesus, after they have met their Savior. And I, I did quite a few things for MetLife. I did their conferences all over the country in about an eight-month span. And one, one of them, I, I was like about the two or three in there the, the, on our rehearsal on the night before. I was sitting with the president's son, and it, they said to me, we have a question. We want to know. You are so different than any other entertainer. I laughed. Any entertainer we've ever had, you're so different, and we want to know why. We've tried to figure it out. You're from the Midwest. You're, you're wholesome. You're, um, you probably had a good parents, and, and on and on. They had many, and I said, yep, you're right. All those, part, all those helped. But I have to tell you the truth. The reason I am the way I am is because I met my Savior, and it's all because of Jesus. And you know what they said to me? They said, we had a feeling you were going to say something like that. See, why are we afraid to say it? And then they said, do you know the song Amazing Grace? And I said, I sure do. They said, would you consider singing that before the patriotic medley? I said, yeah, I'd love to sing that. I said, I don't have any track, or I don't have any, you know, I'm, there's no piano or anything. I, I said, how about if I just go out there and I'll sing it a cappella? The crowd, 30,000. I had, I had a, you know, I had a person there just to help me up the stairs and hand me my microphone. <laughs> I could get used to that so easy. <laughs> But 24 hours later, I was hauling equipment again, time to get over it, <laughs> you know. But, I mean, it, it was the experience, you know. But what happened? He handed me the microphone. It was pitch dark, and I walked. They put me in this one area. The light came on. Just one light came on my face. And I started singing Amazing Grace to this secular crowd of 30,000. And I kept going up a half a step, every verse, and... By the time I got to when we'd been there 10,000 years, the place was almost out of control. It was so exciting. My heart was pounding so it almost was coming out of my body because the people, they didn't even know, but the power of God's spirit was moving in that place. No big fanfare. It was just one light with amazing grace, the truth. The power is when you've been with Jesus, people can tell. 
I consider myself unschooled ordinary. I'm sure a lot of you do too. But I put my head down to no one. Because when you're filled with the Spirit, He is able to do through you what you can't do for yourself. And you are so confident of the truth. And you really don't care anymore what people think because people must be saved. And if they aren't hearing, they have to know. I didn't really mean to get into all that, but I want to make sure that you know that that sentence, can people tell me, if you've considered yourself just ordinary, but if you've been with Jesus, it is noticeable. But since they could see the man who had been healed standing there with them, there was nothing that they could say. You know, there again, there's your reason why, why God said yes to the healing, of the physical healing, because he knew that these men would challenge. But they couldn't challenge when the proof was right there standing in front of them. So they ordered them, they ordered them to withdraw from the Sanhedrin. And in other words, they said, um, excuse, you just go out there. I don't think they said, excuse me. They probably just threw them out. And then they had their little powwow meeting. What are we going to do with these men? Everybody living in Jerusalem knows that they've done an outstanding miracle, and we cannot deny it. I mean, I'm thinking, you didn't even hear them tell you that it was in the name of Jesus. They had nothing to do with it. The name of Jesus healed. See, they're just ignoring again. Just that mere statement when they said, everybody knows that what they have done. Now, Peter couldn't have been more clear about how it was done. But to stop this thing from spreading any farther among the people, we must warn these men to speak no longer to anyone in his name. So that was, the, that, that was their conclusion. So then they called them back in again and commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. Huh. I would have just loved to watch Peter and John about right now. But Peter and John replied, judge for yourselves whether it's right in God's sight to obey you rather than God. I mean, they threw it back. Hey, you know, you got to judge for yourself whether it's right to obey you rather than God. But, but then he says, there's this another great verse, verse 24. We cannot help. We, can, we cannot help speaking about what we've seen in earth. What an answer, huh? If someone ever says to me, I, I, this is such a good, good lesson, again, what to say to people. Because people will say to me, you know, really, you just calm down a little bit. You know, you're a little over the top. Um, you know, all you talk about is Jesus. And, you know, can you cool it a little bit? I'm, it's so neat to be able to have the answer because I just take what Peter and John say. Nope, can't help it. I know what he's done to me. I know how he's changed my life. I can only give him the credit. I'm sorry, I, I can't help but speak about him. I've seen, I've heard, I've been with him. And I'll never be the same. 
After further threats, they let them go. They could not decide how to punish them because all the people were praising God for all what had happened. That had to have been a sight too, right? Here, they're trying to be real stern and command them, you cannot speak in the name of that name anymore, you know, and all that. And, and the people all around, the 5,000, you know, they're just praising the Lord. I want to say, you are losing control, buckles. You are losing it because the power of Jesus' name. For the man who was miraculously healed was over 40 years old. And why Dr. Luke put that in there is because usually, you know, in that day and age, you know, if you were past 40, they didn't really give you much hope for healing or getting better. I mean, you're probably classified over the hill, and you weren't worth saving anymore. And so the fact that that was in there says that no matter until the Lord says your life is done on this earth, he will do whatever he has to do. So whether he's 40 or not. Okay, on the release, Peter and John went back to their own people. You know, their, their own people, probably that group, you know, maybe that 120 bunch. and reported all that the chief priests and elders had said to them. And I don't know if maybe they were telling them, and they told us that we can't, they commanded us that we cannot speak in Jesus' name anymore. And they're telling them that the difficult time of all these, these heavyweight leaders, and, and I don't, I don't think that they were starting to maybe get a little nervous or what, but I loved the way this group of people, because when they told the story, when they told them all what had happened and reported all that had happened, when they heard this, they raised their voices together in prayer to God. They did not look at them and say, oh, that's tough. Boy, that's rough on you. You poor guys. No, if there was anything at all, they're saying, oh, we have got to get them back fortified, renewed, re-strengthened. They got beat up a little bit. Sure, a little nervous that these big wigs coming at them and commanding them, but look at, they raised their voices together in prayer to God. Sovereign Lord, they said, you made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. You spoke by this Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father David. And then they quoted Psalm 2, when David wrote, why do the nations even try to rage? And the people tried to plot. Why do the kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers gather together against the Lord? Why do they even try to do that? That's ridiculous. This is, this is why they started quoting Psalm 2. No matter what you're up against, guys, remember there is no one more powerful than God, and he is on your side. In fact, I went back and, and read all of Psalm 2, and, I, and the very next line is, and the, the anointed one in heaven laughs. When the nations 
come together and, and they rage and the people's plot in vain. And isn't that comforting when we think of all what's going on and it seems like we're, we're kind of losing our power and, and they're taking over and, and the Christian's getting schmucked down and tell you, I, I, I like this believer's prayer because they remind you, believe me, it's pointless. They're going to see in the end, it's pointless. The believer wins. God will always win. And then they went on and said, Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city, conspired against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. I don't know if you had questioned with that. You know, God is always in control, always, always, always. And I know you say it, and I know I say it, but the thing is, maybe if I put it this way, I'll make you say it with even more fervor, and you believe it even more. Because sometimes it doesn't look like he's in control. If he's not in control, that means he lost control. Can your almighty sovereign God ever lose control? So if ever a doubt or even a question comes through your mind, like, is he really in control? Because it sure looks like it. It doesn't, it doesn't look like it. Just remember, our God doesn't know how to lose control. But he has ways of using even people's bad choices. Because God is almighty, he knew how this was going to work out, and he knew that Pilate was going to have many chances, but Pilate was more concerned about Pilate than he was the truth, so he just washed his hands of it and said, okay, um, go ahead, crucify him then. I want nothing to do with this. God knew that Pilate was going to choose to be a weakling and not stand for what was right, and so God says, I can use that. I'll use that. Now, Lord, this is, the, this is how, this, there's a change. I put a star here because I wanted to see where there's a change. Because they first, in their believer's prayer, they first had to make sure that the apostles were fortified and kept, he is in control, he's the creator of the universe. I mean, it's a pointless to think that anybody can come against God and win. I mean, so they were really like, oh, yeah. I'm sure the apostles were saying, of course. I'm sure it was getting more and more exciting all the time because they were getting revved up. That's right. That's right. If there was any hesitation at all, there's no more hesitation. They're on, back on fire. We serve an almighty God. And then... Who will give us the power to do what we're called to do? But then in verse 29, it's like the believer's prayer kind of shifts and says, Now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. In other words, it's almost like, but don't let him get cocky because anything that they are going to be able to do. It's through you and your power. You know, it's, it's just like they evened it out. They balanced it out. 
fortify them, get them back empowered so that they're ready to go back out with great intensity with their message, but make sure that, that they know that it's you working through them. You enable them. You enable them to speak your word with great boldness. Again, nothing of them. You're just borrowing their body. Stretch out your hand. Your hand will be the the hand that will heal and perform miraculous signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. So make sure they know that they can't. It's no magic potion. It's only through the name of Jesus. And after they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken. You talk, you talk about the Acts of the Apostles, and, and it's filled with action. Wouldn't you love to have been in that prayer meeting? And whoever was telling Luke was making sure that Luke knew, and it was so powerful that the room shook. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly, despite what had happened, despite Fight the intimidation. Our God is greater. All the believers, all the believers were one in heart and mind. This is what it looks like in a group of whether it's a few or whether it's thousands. When you are filled with the Holy Spirit, when everybody in there is filled with the Holy Spirit, this is what it looks like. They were one in heart and mind. Now, you know, every, every one of those people are like you and I. I mean, as different as day and night. I mean, we're all so extremely different. You know that they were all different people, different personalities, and different gifts and abilities, and different social statuses, and all that kind of stuff. But all believers, when you're filled with the Holy Spirit, remember I said, you know, you all come together at the cross of Christ the same way. You all, you all, everyone opens God's word and hears God's spirit speak individually to each person the same way. God's powerful Holy Spirit is at work in every one of us, whether you're schooled or unschooled. And this is what it looks like. No one claimed that any of his possessions was his own, but they shared everything they had. See, no competition. Where a group of people knew that they, maybe they had been given a gift in this area, so then they shared it with people who didn't have that gift, or maybe with material things they were blessed with more, so then, then they, you know, everybody working together for one cause, which is the kingdom of God. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and much grace was upon them all. Much grace. What is grace? Undeserved favor. And you know what? You need grace in a group of different people, all with different, different uh, backgrounds probably and, and different opinions. But they were also full of grace, 
much grace was upon them. There was no needy persons among them for for from time to time, those who owned lands or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales and put it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to anyone as he had need. And then we, have, we hear about a certain man. We'll hear more about him. But now we're introduced to him. His name is Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas. I think they renamed him Barnabas because he was such a honey. I think he was such a wonderful man that he genuinely, he genuinely filled with the Spirit, wanted to use whatever gifts God gave him. And so I, he, was, he was named, which means son of encouragement. So we'll know him now from, as Barnabas. He sold a field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. And that's, that's where the fourth chapter ends. But before we, we go, I just want to forewarn you that something terrible happens to this group of wonderful church people between chapter 4 in chapter 5. And there's just a bunch of white space, but let me tell you what happened in that white space. I believe with all my heart that Ananias and Sapphira were a part of this group in chapter 4. And when you're filled with the Holy Spirit and everybody's working together, one heart and mind, and you just wish, I always say, I wish we could just stay in, in Acts chapter 4 and not move. Because it just feels so right, right there. This is the way the church is. This is, what, this is what we should have here. But unfortunately, we're all a bunch of humans. And oh boy, do we like praise. And do we, and do we fall into greed or pride or... I mean, it's just, it's just right there. And if you don't work at it, if you don't like devote yourself or every day work at this, it is just so human nature to fall back into that old self. What happened between Acts 4 and 5 is the difference between when you're filled with the Spirit versus when you're filled with self. Filled with self. And there is, from Galatians 5, we know Paul calls it, when you're of one heart and mind, you are working with the fruit of the Spirit. And out of you comes the fruit of the Spirit. And you know the fruit of the Spirit. And we know those nine. And Paul wrote it so perfectly in order. And when you're fruit of the Spirit, when that's coming out of you, you're selfless. When fruit of self is coming out of you, it's selfish. It's just, I don't have to be educated. I figured that out. And when you have the fruit of the Spirit, when you have those nine, like, I know when people hear those nine fruit of the Spirit, they think, well, 
I know what love is. I know what joy is. No, they don't. They know the cheap counterfeit that self can produce. But in chapter 4, with, when, they, when they were filled with the Holy Spirit, they had love. And what kind of love are we talking about here? Totally unconditional, undeserved, filled with grace. What kind of joy were they having? Well, you know what? It wasn't that they were happy all the time. They had problems like anybody else. But they had, the Spirit was producing joy in them because joy from the Spirit is from within. It's knowing Jesus. It's knowing that no one or nothing can take your salvation from you. And the world can fall apart, but you won't because your joy is in Jesus. The Spirit produces this peace. And the real peace of the Spirit is just, it's really unexplainable. It's, it's like what we talked about when Fanny wrote, Blessed Assurance. When you're just engulfed with one rough, tough thing after another, and you can still sing Blessed Assurance. This is your story. That's what the Spirit wants to do, produce that kind of peace. And the Spirit wants to produce this patience. And what is patience? It's, it's wait, not just wait time-wise. It's wait on the Lord. The Spirit will help you wait for the Lord's timing. You don't jump the gun. And what about the fruit of, of the Spirit when he's producing kindness? Well, a lot of people are nice, but the Spirit wants to produce kindness, which is a total selfless. It's not about you, it's about others. That is something so abnormal for the normal human being. But the Spirit wants to produce that you care about others more than you care about yourself. You care about their needs. The Spirit wants to produce goodness in you and I. And goodness is knowing the definition from God. And that means it might not look good at the time, but you know that in all things, he's turning you out for good. He's turning you more into the likeness of his son. And you know, and he knows, that sometimes it's not always pleasant, but the result will be good. The Spirit wants to keep you hanging on in suffering so that you know that this will be good. I will get closer to him because of it. My relationship with Jesus will be better because of it. I will know him better because of this. I will experience him more because of this. Faithfulness. When the Spirit wants to produce faithfulness in you, that means just trusting him, even when you don't like it or when you don't understand it. Faithfulness. The Spirit will remind you and say, but you can trust him. Because no one loves you like he does. No one's got a plan for you like he does. He knows exactly why he created you. He knows exactly how many days you're going to be on this earth. He knows exactly how he's going to use you. The Spirit wants to produce that kind of confidence, that kind of faith in you. And then he wants to produce a gentleness. And gentleness, I love this one. And I can see why it's the eighth one, because, boy, you need seven above to get to this gentleness. Because that's just, you are strong in what you believe. No one's going to, no matter who you are, schooled or unschooled, it doesn't matter. You know who Jesus is. 
and no one's going to tell you any different. I mean, I have sung in front of Hound City Mission and Supreme Court justices, and I finally realized that, you know what, I tell the same story. There is this, there's a confidence that happens, a gentleness. You don't have to fight and debate. And then the Spirit so wants to make you self-controlled so that, well, it just simply means you've got to control yourself because until you realize that self is a bad enemy, it's your worst enemy, believe it or not. Self is your worst enemy. You think it's the devil. Nope, it's you because the devil will use you try to break you down. Self is your worst enemy. So in chapter 4, you see them working with the fruit of God's spirit, and it's beautiful. But when you do your lesson for next week, all of a sudden, all of a sudden, grace is gone. Thank you, Father, for this lesson. May it cut right to our heart. May it challenge us. May we see that it is a lesson for every one of us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.